I'm Philip Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. In this episode, I'm excited to be speaking with Lady Justice Joyce Aloch. Joyce was my graduation speaker when I completed my Global Master of Arts program at the Fletcher School. Joyce had completed the same program a few years beforehand. Joyce has had a distinguished legal career in Kenya, culminating as a judge on the Appellate Court, which is the precursor to the Supreme Court. She was elected on the International Criminal Court in The Hague, working on cases involving war crimes, issues close to her heart as she has long focused on bringing light to the impact of war on children. After 44 years on the bench, she is now applying her expertise to the field of mediation and dispute resolution. Hi, Joyce. Really nice to connect with you uh, today. How are you doing? I'm fine, thank you. It's, uh, the weather is nice and bright, though a bit too hot, <laughs> uh, but I live in the tropics. so. <laughs> Yeah, we have that in, in common, uh, Joyce. So, uh, yes, uh, that's why apologies for my, my, my dress code, which you can see, but our listeners, thank God, cannot see. Uh, very casual uh, to talk to uh, uh, a judge. <laughs> apologies. No, it's okay. It's fine. <laughs> and for our listeners who cannot see you, so you look absolutely radiant in a very bright, colorful red and, and blue outfit, which I absolutely adore. So I just wanted to say that. Thank you very much. This is... a. Uh... This is African print. Thank you. <laughs> uh, let, let's get started. And I would love to hear you share a little bit about uh, your childhood, how it was like growing up. What was, the, what was it like? What was the atmosphere? And what are some of the memories that come back when, I, when, uh, when you think of your, your, your early childhood uh, when you were still, uh, still at home? What I remember most about my childhood is that I was born in a big family. We were 10 children, wow. and I was child number seven. So I, I don't know why I just assumed all families were big, <laughs> because most of my, most families of my cousins, the, 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 the other family of my cousins, they were seven, the others were eight. Uh, I think that the, the, the smallest family had seven or maybe six so growing in that uh, kind of a big family you learn to share from early childhood you learn to ch to share whatever there is mm. and of course mothers will always say i'm serving this and that's all there is so that means people share <laughs> when you come down uh, you, when you are number seven you know you are literally at the bottom because there are only two, there were only two other uh, children behind me. There was uh, no, there there was Fred, uh, Ruth, and Frank. So there were three. And th another thing I remember is whenever there was we were to go to an occasion, it was always uh, my mother would say, "Okay, um, only you are many. We are many as a family, and only five are allowed to go." So that. Older siblings would always say, that means number one to five. Any, anybody after five, below five, sorry, you are out. <laughs> and then later on, it became a bit number one to six. So I remember remaining out of so many, many invitations because I was number seven. So when you're growing up in a, that kind of a family, you learn many things. You learn to be patient, to be resilient, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And I guess you had to organize yourselves among siblings as well. Yes, we had to organize our, ourselves. I remember that um, number one up to six, they always seem to have so much say. But anything from number seven, they, I don't know why they, my older siblings always <laughs> thought that, we, you know, <laughs> it didn't matter. After, after number six, it didn't really matter who, you know, the other ones. So we tended to hang out together. 
six, seven, eight, nine, ten. We 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 decided to be hanging out together as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. then the older siblings would always need us because they liked to send us. Oh, can you go and get me this? Oh, can you do this <laughs> for me? So. <laughs> Yeah, that that, that right. I remember a lot of that as I was growing. Yeah, yeah. And 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 then quite a young age, you you were sent to a boarding school, right? So can you share about that? Like, why 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 did you go? Why uh, why did you have to go? And how how did it shape you? And and what are some of your memories from that? During that time, there used to be a real competitive exam after four years of education. We called it primary school, and this you know four years of primary school. And then on the fourth year, there was a real national competitive exam. And if you did well in that exam, most of the schools uh, for us girls would be boarding schools. And that is how, um, fortunately, I did well in my standard four, not form four, standard four, the fourth year of primary education, initial primary education. I did well, and that's how I joined a very prestigious girls' school, near girls' school in uh, what is now um, Siaya County. So I joined it at a very early stage in, in the Standard 5. It was very, very early. Yeah. yeah it yeah. was run by missionaries. So uh, discipline was key at that early stage of my life. And I'm happy to say that some of the friends I met during that time because we were in that school for, one would be in that school for four years before you go to the next stage. Some of the friends I met at Nia Girls School, some of the girls I met at Nia Girls School are still my very good friends yeah. to date. Even my own uh, best mate at my wedding, we were in the same class from Standard 5 at that early stage. And I have several, several friends. Were you ganging up with your with your uh, friends to escape some of the discipline from the missionaries? Is that why you have uh, you're bound by by uh, a vow of secrecy among each other? Or? Uh, during those those years, what I can recall is a question of is um, getting out of school or escaping from school didn't arise. Yeah, and you know we were young. And when we get to this, when we got to this school, these were the school rules. So it never even occurred to me that we could escape from school <laughs> because we had, um, we had a free, you know, Saturdays we could go to the shops. It was a free day afternoon, but Sunday was a church day. So maybe because of the ages, because uh, most of us were young at that time, we never really thought of, uh, of, of getting out of school outside school hours. It, it never really was thought of. I, I don't remember. That. Maybe once or twice some people did, yeah. but I don't remember that. Yeah. Yeah. But the discipline, it was strict. The missionaries had strict discipline. Yeah, yeah. Lo looking at you rolling your eyes, which our listeners cannot see, uh, it sounds like it was it was qu quite, a fierce, uh, quite a fierce set of uh, rules there. Yes, but uh, there were rules that shaped our lives. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, these were rules that shaped our lives. I mean, you, 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 the missionaries taught us that honestly, you, you work for something and you earn, you, you earn something, you work for something. Yeah. You just don't sit there and get things free. Yeah. No. Yeah. So we had to do a lot of, uh, like, you know, at th that early stage, we, cle we cleaned our dormitories. Yeah. We washed our own, um, uh, 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 you know, bedding, linen, our clothes. We did our own ironing, and and there was, uh, you know, there was school. The school had gardens where we got vegetables from. We worked in those gardens oh, wow. in the morning before before assembly. So you know, it was it was a life. Ex it was an, an experience that I believe shaped me and so many other girls who went to to near girls school. And you, you'd say some of the lessons you 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 learned from that time were about how to care after yourself, how to self-organize, and, and how to work hard. I imagine. Yes, yes, hard work. Yeah, we the missionaries uh, uh, taught they taught us that whatever you get in life, you have to work for it. There is nothing like 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 free. Yeah. You have to work for things. You have to be disciplined. You have to always, uh, you have to care for people around you. 
you know, etc. Things like yeah. those are things at that very early stage we learned things like that. And was it around that time that you uh, got into girl guiding, or how did you how did you get into that? Yes, I started girl guiding at Nia Girl School because there was. And my girl guide teacher, she's still alive. I was in touch with her about b- before COVID. I was in touch with her. I actually intended to to meet her. And and you know, the girl guiding is all about sharing and and the promise and the law, things like that. Yeah. I started girl guiding at that time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It was a club, girl guiding club. Yeah. So you joined that group, and like, what drew you to it? What was the what was the what was the pull for it? Then uh, I just liked the fact that they were in uniform, <laughs> and I liked the games they were playing. Uh, I think it was one uh, once a week. They would you'd see them meeting under a tree and playing games, <laughs> and I think I was attracted to that. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's something that was a it, it has been a lifelong involvement as well, right? You've you've supported girl guiding th- throughout your life. Yes, once a guide, always a guide. <laughs> right. I've been a girl guide all my life. That's why I'm saying once a guide, always a guide. I even um much later in in my life I continued with girl guiding even when I was a high court judge when I was a judge in Kenya here, I was a girl guide. I served in the land in the office. Uh, the headquarters of guiding is in London. I I served in the headquarters yeah. also, and um, just recently on the twenty fifth of, of of February, Kenya celebrated one hundred years of guide guiding in Kenya yeah. in this country, and the founders of the guide and scout movement are buried here in Kenya. Yeah, this I didn't know. That like many people don't know that. Yeah. Yes, yes, they are buried here in Kenya. They chose. To to be buried in Kenya if when if they died and they are actually buried in Kenya. So the girl guide and the girl scouts once a year we observe, and we go to Nyeri to the graveside. The girls yeah. go to Nyeri to the graveside. Yeah, yeah. Is is that is that uh, something that you advocate uh, for 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 young people in general, like discipline from a boarding school and girl guiding for girls? <laughs> Is that is that something that somehow builds a foundation for life in your view? Because like, it, it really hearing you, it sounds something that really is a very core part of the, the your your kind of your 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 moral and your your kind of resourcefulness and all that. Um, schools are different these days. I'm not sure that I would uh, openly um, advocate uh, boarding schools, but. Um, Boarding schools are different. We observed, we observed uh, rules. We observed, uh, you know, maybe we were a different generation. But girl guiding, yes, mm-hmm. I would recommend girl guiding anytime to, 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 you know, it it helps to nurture girls. It helps them to uh, become responsible. And as I said, uh, once a guide, always a guide. You learn virtues that you live with throughout your life. As a girl guide, yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's, it's a good moment to ask you, like, about h- how you end up, how you ended up uh, cho- choosing to to pursue uh, law, uh, and and where the idea c- came from. <laughs> That's interesting, because uh, you'd be surprised to learn to hear from me that law was never my choice of a career. Right. <laughs> law was my father's choice of a career for me. It was never mine. I didn't have any role models who are lawyers whom I could look up to. But uh, it was my father who um, came up with the idea. He didn't even give me a chance anyway. <laughs> At least, uh, thank God nowadays fathers give the, <laughs> or the children demand to be given answer. He didn't give me a chance. He just told me tomorrow morning uh, when I'm going to work, uh, you, you'll come with me. She didn't say, will you come with me? He said, you'll come with me tomorrow morning and we are going somewhere. And those were the days you didn't question your father, where are we going? Today, even my uh, uh, grandson, he, he's going to be 10 in May, Uching. I can't just tell him tomorrow morning. He'll tell me, okay, where are we going, grandma? Where? Tell me. Those were the days you didn't question where you, you know, what your yeah. father said. Yeah. So the following morning, I got ready in time. I got into the car when he was going to work. And um, it was, we were living, uh, he was living somewhere on Gong Road and I was, it was just after school, it was after school holiday. 
I was the only child in the in the house in Nairobi. The others were already at home, but because my school was close to Nairobi Limuru Girls School, so the following morning, I, as I said, I got into the car. He drove along Gong Road. I was surprised to see when he was taking a turn, and then the turn then to Kenya School of Law. I, I started wondering, oh my goodness, does my father know anybody in this school? Because he had never said where we were going and he didn't say what we were going to do. So he got into the school, school compound, he stopped the car, and he said, uh, come out, this is where we are going. <laughs> and I was still wondering, why, why, is, why are we going here? But I couldn't ask him because you didn't question your father. So he was a tall, towering man. I, I was trotting behind him, and this is after my after from six, in fact. So um, he got into he, he walked. He got into the uh, in the he was he walked along the corridor. The door was written principal. It was open. He got in. The uh, the principal secretary was seated there. He asked. He was uh, an Irishman, Mr. Tudor Jackson. My father asked, is the principal in? The lady said, yes. She, you know, she stood up. My father was very tall. <laughs> she stood up. And um, I think the principal must have heard his voice. So the principal opened the door and said, yes, I am in. So my father said, can I come in with my daughter? So we went in. And that was when he started, my father started talking to Mr. Tudor Jackson. That's the first time I heard that I was going to do, to study law. Because he told Mr. Tudor Jackson, this is my daughter. I brought her here and I want her to be a lawyer. That was the first time I heard about me going to study law. And he never discussed it with you? No. <laughs> so he told the principal, sorry, I'm in a hurry. I'm going to work, but I leave my daughter with you. So the principal, he was a very funny, uh, tall man <laughs> also. He said, yes, she's going to be very safe with me. Just leave her. I'll, I'll have a chat with her. That was the first time ever that I had that I was going to study law. But you, you mentioned the context was one in which you, you were inclined to respect and accept your father's wisdom in that sense. So how did you accept that decision and what, what, what did it trigger in you? Like what was your reaction and how did, what did you do with that? With that? <laughs> you know, <laughs> the person who saw all my reaction was the principal <laughs> because my, my father excused himself. He said, he looked at his watch and he said, uh, Mr. Jackson, I'm getting late. I'm going to work. But here is my daughter. So I think he is the one who saw my reaction uh, because he just laughed and said, uh, sit down. You are here with me. And I see that you're going to study law. I didn't even tell him the story. I didn't know him. I was meeting him for the first time. So I couldn't tell him that, um, <laughs> that this is the first time. <laughs> I couldn't tell him this is the first time I'm hearing about this. I just sat there and um, <laughs> he said, I'll explain what's happening. This is the Kenya School of Law. The university is uh, opening a faculty, so there will be a transfer. So you will be actually uh, joining the faculty of law. And so you'll be pursuing a law degree. But the ones, the school as it is, was didn't offer um, law degrees, yeah. but it offered diplomas. Yeah. 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 And blah, blah, and so on. So I was listening for the first time, hearing what this is all about. <laughs> all the same, my father having, uh, we, as I said, we were 10 children. In My mother had 10 children. I was number seven. So if my father made the decision that I, out of the 10, I'm the one who should pursue law, I respected his uh, decision. And I decided, all, all right, fine. He's, he's my father. He knows better. So I'm going to pursue this law and I'm going to make the best of it for his sake. Yeah. 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 You, you mentioned in a, in a, in an earlier conversation that we had that you really wanted to, to take that to heart and then take it to the highest level possible, uh, uh, yes. to, to kind of, I don't know if this is the right word, like to honor your father or to, to show your father. I don't know what was going on in you emotionally. If it was a, if it was to, to, to try to impress him or to try to do, do him honor or something? Yes, as I said, he having picked me number seven in the family, that I'm the one going to, I'm going to pursue a law degree. I, I respected that decision that he made. And it's a pity that even that same evening, he didn't, he didn't come back to that conversation. He, 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 he considered it done. <laughs> so I said, okay, 
I will take this, I will do that, I will accept my father's wish, I will pursue a law degree as he wants, and I will carry it to the highest level possible. Yeah, yeah. I, that, I made that decision for myself. Yeah. I didn't pronounce it to him, but I just made it to myself, that this is what I'll do. Because there is something I knew nothing about. I had no role models. And, the, and I'd like to express the importance of having role models for young people. If you have role models, then you have an idea about, about you know, maybe what you are thinking of doing. But nowadays, I think that's not a problem. I suppose nowadays, people even, uh, young people even go online. But uh, did we have anything called online? No. <laughs> But if you had, you know, like teachers, there were so many teachers, so you could learn from them. You could, they, they were role models and nurses and doctors. And, but I just didn't know any lawyer at that time. No. Yeah, yeah. you had no idea what, what a lawyer did. Uh, and I imagine, no. mo- I, can I assume that most of your uh, peers were, were, were men as well? Yes, yes. At, at the law school? Yeah. Oh, Yes, at the university, yes, yeah, women, we were, you know, the, the, the girls, women, we were always in the minority. Yeah, yeah. Most of my classmates were, you know, were boys. We were in the minority. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I imagine at some point you, you, you must have uh, come to grips with, with the, the studies and, and started developing a, a range of interests and wishes on the direction that you wanted to take. So, so do, you, do, do yes. you recall the first time that, that, that you were, you were, you, 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 f- you felt an inclination towards a particular area of, of, of law and you, you kind of knew that, yeah, this, this, this is who you were, this is what you wanted to do. Yes. During the second year uh, of studies at the university, there was a program, it was called a clinical program. Just the other day I inquired about it and I found that it still go, it's, okay. it's still there. During this program, um, you could be attached to... Um, to law, practicing lawyers, you could be attached to the court, you could be attached to the Attorney General's office. And um, it was during this clinical program that I was able to, to go to the courts. And if you, you, you went to the courts, then you, you, know, you went to the magistrate's courts, you sat with the magistrate and that. So that's when I started developing an interest on the bench. Yeah. Because I admired the way that they listened to cases. You know, you you, you could you if it could be a whole week sit, sitting with a magistrate. Then I started developing the interest. I I admired the way they listened to cases, and at the end of it, made decisions. Yeah. Then I said, "My, I can do this. This is interesting. That is really what they made me develop an interest." Yeah. In in in, in on the bench. Yeah. yeah. And then you saw lawyers came and argued their cases. And then I said, oh, wow, this, uh, this man sitting here as a magistrate is listening to all this and then eventually uh, making a decision. I thought that was yeah. really yeah. admirable. Yeah. And, you, and you, you use the word this man, of course, because there were probably very few, if any, women judges uh, at the time. No, much later, there was only one woman yeah. magistrate. <laughs> right. Much later. <laughs> right. And that is how I developed an interest, and eventually I became the second woman magistrate and, and judge wow. in Kenya. Wow. There was only before me there was only one other magistrate who subsequently became was promoted and became a judge. I was the second one. Yeah, and, and if I I'm very unfamiliar with the the, the, the legal field, but from from hearing you and the little I know about it, the, the bench is is. Um, there's a lot of theater around it or symbolism or formality. And you, you, there's a, a ceremony almost as, as wearing your robe. And then once you're robed, you're almost a different yeah. person. Yeah. Did that attract you to it or, or uh, did it feel a bit, uh, to me, it feels a bit, the only common reference I have is, is in maybe in business where now we're kind of dropping our, our suits and ties, but it, it feels like the, the, the judges are going to keep their robes for, for some time. <laughs> um, at the level of magistracy, there was no robe. Yeah. Magistrates uh, didn't wear robes. So, and um, those are the people that we spent, uh, you know, the clinical program. But then the lawyers always had robes on. Yeah. 
And then, um, as you are already, once you're already in the court building, you'd see the judges in their robes, yeah, yeah. you know, the ceremonial robes. Once they have a, once they had a ceremony, otherwise they are going to court and they are robed. And those were the days when the judges also wore the wigs, oh, yes. the white wigs. <laughs> Thank so you to the I British. Looked at it and I said, wow, <laughs> this is, this is quite impressive. Yes. <laughs> If we fast track a little bit to to uh, your 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 time at the uh, the ICC, the International uh, Criminal Court, um, so so you were you you were appointed uh, onto the court, um, and um, I'd love to hear a little bit what was your uh, experience there, or some of the um, events that really shaped you or, or stood out from, from this time, dealing with issues um, which had uh, linked to, to the, the, uh, the aftermath of war and atrocities and extraordinarily difficult, complex issues. Thank you. Now, in the first place, I want to correct you, if you don't yeah, mind. Of in order to, um, to be a judge at the International Criminal Court, countries have to nominate their, uh, their, 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 their judges or, or whoever they feel is most qualified. Yeah. So I was nominated by the Kenya government to run for this position. This being a judge at the international, at international level is an elective position. Yeah. Judges, all these, uh, all these UN tribunals or the International Court of Justice, International Criminal Court, all the judges sitting in those courts and tribunals are elected. Yeah. And elections are in New York at the General Assembly. Like for, interna for International Criminal Court, elections are at the General Assembly, General Assembly of States Parties to the Rome Statute. Yeah. So that's where I was elected. And... Um, uh, that year, uh, six of us were elected. Uh, two of us were they two or th um, three of us were women. We were replacing six who had been there before, who were already there. Elections to the ICC is done after after every three years. So eventually, I joined the court. I was elected. Uh, eventually, I joined the court. I was coming from a national court, national court in Kenya. I was by then the, in the Court of Appeal, which at the time was the highest court. Now we have the Supreme Court. Since uh, we had a new constitution in 2010, it brought in uh, the Supreme Court. So joining the International Criminal Court, there are 18 judges from different parts of the world. That, that's, that's very deliberate. Now, the Rome Statute is a fused system of common law and civil law. So some judges have civil law background, some judges have common law background. Over and above that, not all judges, not all those elected as judges of the International Criminal Court, not all of them have been judges in their countries. Some have been professors at the universities. Those who have been judges are normally um, classified as A. Yeah. Some have had very strong uh, NGO backgrounds, some professors, and ETC and ETC. Yeah. So um, the first thing that struck me was that uh, the fact that we were not all from um, the same background, in the sense that we were not all we were not we were not all originally judges. Right, you understand? Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We were different. We were coming from different backgrounds. That really struck me because I didn't know that. So, so some of the uh, people appointed as judges were ne elected as judges. Were never judges before. They were professors or. or that's or what scholars. I'm yeah, saying. Yeah. That's yeah. what I'm saying. They were professors, and that's what I'm saying. So that really surprised me because uh, the background I was coming from, uh, the Kenyan courts, we were all lawyers, and most of us workers. Much later, they started appointing lawyers, practicing lawyers. But during my time, most of the um, uh, most of the judges came from the background, the, in the sense, came from magistracy, yeah. and worked their way up to judges. But I was for the first time faced with a situation where some people had never been in court, in the sense that they were in, in classrooms lecturing, blah blah. Yeah. 
And then what I had to adapt to was the fact that we were not all from the common law background. And that tells a lot uh, when you're working. Because in, in, as a trial judge, you would be three, for example. You might find two are from the civil law background and only one is from the common law. Yeah. Or if you're working five, if you're ha- handling an appeal, you're five. Maybe two are civil law and five, three are uh, common law background. So uh, that's when I was, this is something that I was coming in touch with for the first time because um, I was now finding out the differences between common law and civil law. For example, we are in a trial and one of my colleagues who is from the civil law background takes on witnesses and sort of cross-examines witnesses. In the common law, we would seek clarifications from witnesses, but the lawyers do the cross-examination. And I remember one day, um, I just asked my colleague, she was, we were sitting three of us on, on the bench, and I asked her, but you are interfering. She said, oh, no, in civil law, we can do this. <laughs> you know, we are having a conversation in the middle of the, of the, of the trial. So you, so you had people from different countries, uh, people who had been judges, not judges, people with different, different uh, legal practices. It must have affected, as you said, it's not just... The, the, it, it sounds cultural challenge, procedural challenge. Uh, the, the, the entire dynamics must have been really unusual. <laughs> yes, but um, because at that, that uh, at that level you're already very senior. I was already a very senior judge. You get accustomed to it very. You adjust easily. Yeah. I had been a judge by the time I was elected to join the international to go to the international criminal court. I had thirty five years yeah. sitting on the bench. Yeah. Yeah, so that is a very senior uh, judicial officer. So I was able to adapt. I just said it was surprising. It was interesting, surprising, but I was able to adjust. And I I want to believe that all judges or all people elected as judges were able to adjust. That's why we were able to work together, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then here I was used to working with uh, national judges from uh, from Kenya mostly. Uh, though when I was a magistrate uh, in Kenya, most of the magistrates or judges at that time were from the Commonwealth. But later on, more and more Kenyans took, uh, took up the positions. But here I was now at the International Criminal Court where judges we were only 18, but from different parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. That was also something very interesting, Yes. And are there um, moments that really stick out in your mind uh, or moments you, that you're particularly proud of uh, in, your, in your time uh, at the ICC? I was proud of the fact that I had a lot of experience as a judge. And uh, my colleagues, some of my colleagues appreciated this. So if, if we were, you know, judges always have to discuss a judgment so if I put in a point of view and I say, uh, you know, under common law and th- this sort of thing, we would handle it this way and, and not this way. And so I was happy that some of my colleagues appreciated the fact that I had a lot of experience as a, as a, as a judge. Yeah. And is, is there a particular, particular case that, that you worked on that really uh, stayed with you or, or had, a, had an impact on you? Uh, you know, uh, the Rome Statute... Under the Rome Statute, we had jurisdiction over war crimes, yeah. crime of aggression, not, not really as such. The most, the most heinous crimes you can yeah. think of. Yeah, yeah. And, and listening to, to those witnesses who are also at times witnesses and victims, yeah. listening to them. And the other day, I just remembered, uh, I was talking to university students um, they, were, they had an open day and they invited other law students and I was talking to them and the subject had to do with uh, sexual and gender-based vi- uh, violence. And I was telling them that, this, you know, when, it, when we talk about sexual and gender-based violence, it, involved, it affects both men and women. And I was able to recite to them uh, a witness and victim that was before me once at International Criminal Court because by the time I joined that court, I thought I had had, a, had had it all. But I was shocked when a male uh, victim of sexual mm-hmm. violence uh, gave his evidence. And I was like, wow, 
I mean, mm-hmm. I just looked at him. He was a man aged about 60, 61. Yeah. And this, there was uh, what was going on in that, uh, in that country at the time, that was Central African Republic. It was a conflict, a real bad conflict. And this, and, and, and um, whoever, you know, whoever they were that was attacking them. Because that, that's something I, I believe you, you, you mentioned was quite unique about the ICC process is that it's this uh, recognition of victims as part of the judicial process, yes. which doesn't happen. So I'd, I'd love to hear you maybe brief uh, talk, talk about that because it, it sounds like it was something that was um, almost as important as, as a, it, it was part and parcel of the, of the, of the, of the, of the judicial process is, is to, to, to give that recognition and, and, and have that on record and, and, and out in the open. What I would like to say is that at the International Criminal Court, victim protection is a big deal. Mm. It's a very big thing mm-hmm. because these are the people who have suffered yeah. out of this, all these atrocities yeah. coming out of war crimes, crimes against humanity. So, um, there's victim protection. And what also something that really uh, impressed me was that inside the courtroom, we are used to seeing the, the team for the defense and the prosecution, but at, at the International Criminal Court, you also have the team, lawyers for the victims. Mm, yep. Yes, victims are represented through counsel. If it's a witness who is also a victim, then normally they would sit with a psychologist next to them, mm-hmm. a caregiver, psychologist, somebody that reassures them, yeah, yeah. a professional who reassures a witness. So a witness is sitting in court with such a person next to the witness, yeah. be it be the witness, be it be a man or woman, yeah. will sit with them, yeah. somebody like that to reassure them, to give them confidence to continue talking and saying what exactly happened yeah. to them. Yeah, yeah, that that I found very interesting, and I found it you know it it worked, because quite often, these witnesses who are also victims, they cried a lot inside the courtroom. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we had to adjourn for ten, thirty minutes, twenty minutes to enable them to calm down. Mm. And and when you say it worked, it enabled. So it's part part of the. Uh, recovery process for the for the victims themselves. I, I believe also the fact of having um, kind of such a so, so perpetrators or accused and also distinguished judges presence somehow makes this event uh, acknowledged, acknowledged, and, and 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 like when you say it worked, can you can you maybe expand on that a little bit? Um, a witness who is a victim would, for example, say. I never knew I would have a day to tell my story, to tell what happened to me. I never knew a day would come when I would sit in the same room Mm. with, 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 with the people who sexually abused me or molested me. And I would sit and feel safe because I'm protected. Yeah. You know, things like that. Yeah. yeah. And have that yeah. characterized as, as wrong. Uh, in this, yes. Yeah. And, and, and uh, because unfortunately at the time when I was at the ICC, that the cases took long before they were brought mm. for trial uh, for, for what one reason or another. And the witness, for example, would say, it has taken four years since this thing happened to me. I thought I would die with the secrets inside me before I relate. But now I have an opportunity to tell the judges what really happened to me. Because you you, you spent quite a a significant part of your career working on the impact of war, and especially the impact of war um, on, on, on children. Are you are you comfortable sharing a bit what uh, what drew you to that, or what were you able to 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 do that? And, and I, I mean, I, I believe I believe you. Some of that focus was also on on Uganda, which which had absolutely dreadful use of of uh, children in warfare as actors, and then as of course as victims. Yes, I did a lot of work uh, with children. Maybe I carried it over from my girl guide days. That was only girls, but then I worked, uh, I did a lot of work with children in general. And I, I served in the UN Committee on the Rights of the Child, 
in Geneva for six years. I was the vice chair. Using that in that knowledge, I then established within the African Union. It was OA Organization of African Unity (OAU), and the following year it transformed into African Union. Using the knowledge that I acquired from the UN Committee, I established a, a committee within the African Union. It was there in the books, but it had never been actualized. Now, that was the time um, when the war of Lord Resistance Army was going on in Uganda. And um, because I was in the UN committee and I was also in the African committee, at some point I was in both serving in both committees. At the African committee level, where I was chair, chairing that committee, I was commissioned to uh, to just find out what actually was going on in uh, with children in Uganda. So um, I remember I went with Professor Asefa, who was my vice in the committee, uh, the African uh, Union Committee. We went to Uganda, to the northern part of Uganda, uh, Kitgum. And it was in Kitgum. We stayed for a whole week because it wasn't easy to get information within a day or two. Then uh, on the... Uh, on the first day, we arrived in the evening, and the following day, I just generally learned. We we we, we learned what was going on. We were talked. We were told about what was going on, and that was that is where I learned about night commuting by children. What did it mean? It meant that mm. children left left schools at about three o'clock because this war the L. Lord's Resistance Army War targeted children. So children left schools at about uh, three in the afternoon and they walked to um, centers of safety. Kitgum, where we were staying, was a center of safety. Oxfam had built, how um, you know, had put up buildings, the roof, the walls, and the floor, and that was it. So um, children did not go back to their homes in the evenings. In, 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 from three o'clock, they went to set places of safety. So, so we decided, uh, uh, um, Professor Sef and I, we decided to go to one of the schools, and they were quite a lot, quite a long distance. We drove there, but coming back, we decided to commute. And children, because they didn't have transport, they were walking. Some of the parents brought food to the children, either in school or at the center. And that's why it was called night commuting by children because the centers were far from schools. So the children walked and that day we walked with the children, commuting with the children. And it is, uh, you know, they suffered many things on the way. They were molested, both girls and boys, because where they were walking, they were not the only ones. There were many other people walking. So they walked up to the centers of uh, for safe, for, because there were places of safety. And this one, this, this particular group were walking to our set to Kitgum. And um, what was so surprising is that at night, children would refuse to get into these buildings because they would say, if we stay outside on the doorsteps, we can see when the LRA soldiers are coming, then we can run. Wow. And these were young children, you know. So it, it, it was quite an experience trying to convince them. They would say, no, we are not going to get into the building. If we go in, they will come and, and close the door and abduct all of, the, of us. So, yeah, yeah. and whilst we were at uh, that school before we started night commuting with children, we were taken to see um, those children. In fact, we actually also received children who had escaped, because some of them managed, used to manage to escape. Some of them would escape yeah. after a year, two years or so, and they would run to these centers. They would find their way somehow. They would be in the forest, would talk to somebody who would bring them to the centers. And your, your work was to document what was going on, right? To draw Yes, to then I, uh, we made a report, which we then uh, handed over to uh, the African Union. And the term of the committee, I mean, a term of members was only four years, so our membership uh, expired and it could not be renewed. So other people were elected and I suppose they continued with the work. Yeah. In fact, I remember as a Kenyan, um, 
the next person who took over from me uh, from in that committee, African Committee on the Rights and Welfare of the Child, was the current our current Chief Justice, Honorable Lady Justice uh, Martha Kome. She is the current Chief Justice, the first woman Chief Justice in in the country. Yeah, she took over from me. From yeah. uh, she was elected after after me in the, at the African uh, Union. Yeah. Especially as we have this conversation in the, in the context of the uh, the ongoing uh, war between Russia and Ukraine, um, with uh, millions and millions of re- refugees, mostly women and children, I think it's something that is is sometimes uh, a little bit uh, forgotten is is the the consequences of of war on on, on, on children. Uh, children from yeah. Uh, uh, yeah 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 the vulnerability is as uh, I mean even though there's in, in Europe overwhelming uh, at the moment overwhelming positive uh, willingness to help there's of course hu- hu- significant number of people who are trying to uh, abuse the vulnerable vulnerability of, of some of these uh, some of these groups of course and maybe maybe I can add that uh, I uh, sorry I didn't remember it long before um, I I went to Uganda. I was in a I was a member of International Tribunal for War Affected Children. It was um, mm. uh, it was uh, put up by from Canada, and I think we were about six judges from you know it was international, and um, I went to um, Bosnia Herzegovina. All six of us went to Bosnia Herzegovina on this whole issue of children affected by war. And, and, and was there a similar dynamics that you observed, like ch- children forced to to try to seek protection, like vul- uh, vulnerable from from abduction and trafficking, or, or were, were some of the issues quite quite different? Issues were more or less the same, but um, uh, things like night commuting by children, the, those, those were not there, but they were targeted, just like the ones we saw in Uganda. Children were the war affected them negatively. Yeah. Shall I put it that way? Joseph, I've really enjoyed our conversation, and as we as we uh, get to 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 the to the to the to the end, I was really keen to still ask you to um, maybe share your perspective on 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 gender prejudice in in the legal profession, and and also juggling so many roles as as a as a as a, as a mother while as a judge uh in in a profession that is that is still or what definitely was dominated by men and maybe is slightly uh opening up but but yeah i think it would be very very valuable to 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 hear your your perspective there on how how that kind of discrimination still still plays out to this day well let me start by saying that things have changed so much so that I'm very proudly saying that we have in Kenya the first woman chief justice. This is a, a a bench where I was the second woman magistrate and judge. There was only one other woman. Thank goodness she's she's still a very good friend of mine. We are in touch. She was the first woman magistrate and judge. And for almost ten years we were just t- two women judges. And um, Things were a bit slow. Promotions for we had to juggle our way. But I remember, <laughs> I remember one of our colleagues, and he was uh, a judge. He was a magistrate, a judge, because even magistrates were from the Commonwealth. I remember him, Mr. Macready. I remember him saying, "Thank God you are only two, because you are so tough, <laughs> and the only the only two of you." Yeah, we had to we had to survive. Put it this way: we had to survive amongst men. The majority of the judges and magistrates were men, and we had to survive. So we put up, we put our best f- feet forward. I had to put my yeah, best yeah. foot forward. She had to, and we had to work. We really had to work to to prove ourselves. And that's why today we have, I be, we have many, many women. And that's why I believe today we have a first woman chief justice. I think we deserve it. Yeah, yeah. yeah because we we worked hard. We in, we talked about it. We invited as many women as possible. We told them there is, you know, when you qualify as lawyers, there are opportunities here. We gave a lot of talks. And today we don't need to say anything more. You just need to point and say, yeah, look yeah. at this, look at this, look at this. 
but it was it, it it was tough coming up at that time because we were both we were both married and we were both mothers at the time we were only two women judges we were married we were mothers but still we got on with the work but uh, we yeah. you know we, we we there's there are areas where we we felt strongly and there are areas where we suffered discrimination the two of us were married so we didn't know that when you are a married woman in the civil service you are not entitled to house allowance which i discovered purely by chance yeah. <laughs> yeah because of a male colleague of mine we had had a case together we had had a case together we got our pay slips together we compared it and i asked him why are you earning this and it's not in mine he said oh no you can't earn this uh, this this because you, this is house allowance and you are you, you are a married woman i said excuse me i'm a judge like you <laughs> So when I when I sent and showed it to my uh, my only female colleague we took up this matter seriously and eventually yeah won and women judges yeah. and yeah. indeed this permeated through the throughout the civil service women married or, ma- or not married they were paid house allowance so that in my view yeah. that was an outright discrimination isn't it but things like Absolutely. that yeah. are not yeah. there anymore thank god they are not there anymore yeah. but somebody had to be there to you know to see it and to fight for it i've i've really enjoyed our conversation joyce and i i wanted to ask you if there's anything you wanted to share before before we we close just to say that um having been a judge for 44 years i was uh, i before i i completed my term at the international criminal court when i had about 4 years to go i decided that when i when i my term ended at the icc i would go into adr alternative dispute resolution so i trained both as an arbitrator at the chartered institute of arbitrators in london and a year or two after that i trained as a mediator at the center for effective dispute resolution in london though i am at, there i trained in both when i eventually uh, retired from the icc which was 2018 I have taken mediation very very seriously. I took mediation seriously. Yeah. I've trained until now I'm a certified international mediator. I enjoy mediation and I didn't know that I would manage this transition from making orders in court yeah. for 44 years to sitting with parties and assisting them to come to their own resolution of a dispute. It is possible. Yeah, that's interesting. Isn't it? It is possible I just want to say that it is possible that ju- even those who have been judges for as long as I've been can still be very useful in ADR alternative dispute resolution maybe arbitration maybe conciliation but my field is mediation Thanks for listening please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from to be the first to know when new episodes come out Thank you.